Uh, today we are in Genesis chapter 49, starting 29, and then we'll finish through 50. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that, it is, that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought and bought in the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave, that is, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seven days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke in the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up to bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they had came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons <clears throat> carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the uh, field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all of the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. And as for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, and counted were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you give me grace as I seek to teach from your word and from this last passage in Genesis? Would you guide my words? Would your Holy Spirit work as your word goes forth? Lord, I pray that you would be with each of us as we receive this word. Uh, that our hearts would be open uh, in faith to what you are wanting to communicate to us today from it, and uh, would you give us hearts that uh, would believe, would believe in you and uh, in what you have have done, most of all through your son uh, and his life and his death and his resurrection. We pray all these things in your name, amen. Recently, uh, someone asked me a question, Bible trivia question, right? <clears throat> what command is repeated most often in the Bible? Simple enough question. But I wasn't so confident I knew the answer. And, you know, I'm the pastor, right? So I'm supposed to know the answer to the questions. Uh, you know, and I... I don't know if you've ever been there, somebody ask, asks the, a question and you kind of like, oh, maybe I know the answer, maybe I don't, I'm not sure, maybe you, in class as a student, you know, in, in school and you're kind of afraid to raise your hand and give the answer because you're afraid of what? You're afraid you'll be wrong, right? <coughs> afraid that if you answer and you're wrong and that'll be embarrassing, you'll look foolish. Here's the irony of this situation for me. The answer to the question is, do not fear. That's the answer. The command that's given the most in Scripture, the most often, is do not fear, or some version of that phrase or that command, like take courage, do not fear, take courage, do not fear, take courage. Now, you know, as we go into a new year here in a month, um, and we'll have some Bible reading plans that we're going to 
uh, put on bookmarks, and we're going to encourage you to read through the Bible in a year. And now when you go through the Bible next year, you're going to be seeing that over and over and over again. It's like when, you, you know, when you're looking for a, a new car and you decide that's the car I want to get, and then you see it every single day when you go driving. Now you know, and you'll see it everywhere. Do not fear. I hate to think of myself as a fearful person. I hate to, to think about being afraid. But it doesn't take long to think of all the ways that my actions from day to day are often determined, not by faith in God, but, but actually by fear. I mean, if you take some moments to think about and just kind of uh, examine your life and examine your heart in different moments, I think what you'll find is oftentimes from day to day, the decisions that you make are actually more decided by fear than by anything else. It's not so much what you can do or what, you, what could happen, but rather fear of what might happen that keeps you from doing something. Why are we so stricken with fear? I think our fears are usually found just beyond the boundary of our human limitations. Wherever our human limitations stop or whether we perceive our human limitations stop, then just beyond that is where our fear begins, right? And our world tells us that the answer to this question is just push the boundaries of our human limitations. Our world tells us, just be more than human. That we shouldn't have any limitations. But God created us with limitations, did he not? And he put Adam in the garden and gave him limitations. Why did he do that? And why did he call it good? He called it good because those limitations are actually what bring us to have to trust him, right? It draws us back to the Father in dependence on our Creator. But here's what Satan does. Satan twists these things to create fear in us instead. Rather than going to our Father... We're afraid. We look to ourselves and we're afraid. And our fear paralyzes us. In Genesis, it opened with this, this grand creation of light and life, right? Now, if you remember all the way back, goodness, if you can remember all the way back when we started Genesis, I mean, it would be easier if we hadn't done all of Romans in between. My bad. But... But if you can remember back to the very beginning, Genesis starts with, with this light. God creates light and life, and it bursts forth, right? And then here at the end, it's filled with death and darkness. Here at the end of Genesis, people are dying, and they're afraid of dying, and it feels so gloomy, but... What I want you to see this morning is that in the midst of death's darkness, 
Genesis gives us a glimmer of light. You see, sin produces death, and death seems immovable. It seems uncompromising. It seems inevitable. But the message of these final scenes of Genesis is this. Take courage. God is stronger than evil. You see, sin came into the world, and evil springs forth. And from Genesis 3 on, we're all kind of wondering, how is God going to take care of this? And then God comes into the world in Genesis 12, and He makes this covenant with these promises to Abraham that He's going to do this thing. But yet, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 on, we've still wondered, but, but what about evil? And what about sin? And what about death? How can God's promises possibly be true when that's still there? When that hasn't been taken care of? I think that's the question that the end of Genesis is answering. I think it's the answer to our fear. That's how we can take courage. So I want to give you this morning four ways that we can take courage, or four reasons, rather, in the text that we can take courage. First, take courage. God's promises are reliable. Throughout Jacob's life, we've seen him often driven by fear. If anyone is driven by fear more than anyone else, In the book of Genesis, it's Jacob, really. There's more examples of him being driven by fear than anyone. He's a fearful little mama's boy at the beginning, if you remember. He didn't want to leave home. And then his deception of his father, that's an outgrowth of his fear. And then he's afraid, maybe rightfully so, of his brother killing him. Remember, his mom overhears his brother saying, well, when my dad dies, then, you know? And so his mom tells him, you know, go run away, get out of here. And and all throughout his life, Jacob is afraid of losing his loved ones, especially once Joseph is gone. Then what is his response consistently to Joseph's brothers? It's always, no, no, I cannot be bereaved of my other son, or else I'll go down to Sheol, right? He's constantly afraid. Yet, even though he continually repeated that fear that he would go down to Sheol in grief, here at the end, at his death, not only is his death not a bereavement, not a separation from his children, but actually what we see in what we saw in chapter 49, 1 is that all of his children are gathered to him. And ultimately what we see in this last bit of chapter 49 is the Bible, uh, Genesis, saying that his death is a gathering of himself to his fathers. Far from being taken away because of God's promises, he's gathered up. His mind is no longer set on earthly comforts that he might lose. But Jacob's vision is set 
on heavenly gain. And in so, he points his son's eyes to the promised land. He says, go and bury me there. But, but I think the point here is not so much for his sons to care so, so much about some dirt in a particular place. But he's directing their eyes to the promises of God. See, the world breeds in us fear of losing out. Fear of losing out of this, of that. Fear of losing out on comfort or of pleasure or of gain. I mean, that's the constant message of everything from social media to pornography, right? Oh, wait, it's the same thing most of the time, but whatever. We constantly fear what we might miss out on, and so we don't commit to anything. This is a phenomenon that, uh, uh, you know, People who study human behavior have been noticing that, that even in recent decades, this thing has happened where, where uh, the coming generations won't even commit to something that's happening on Saturday. They won't even RSVP, yeah, I'll be there on Saturday, because they're afraid that something else might come up, that they want to do better than that thing on Saturday, and so they don't want to commit to it. Ultimately, we end up missing out because some of the best things in life take commitment, and commitment's scary. We're so concerned about what we don't have, and so we find no commitment in what God has given us. Sickness and death is the ultimate version of that problem, right? Our culture sees this, and their answer is to work to extend the boundaries of human capability, but not for God's glory or for the good of people, but in belief of the lie of the serpent in the garden, you could be like God. And of course, that would be the attitude that our world would have because they don't believe they'll be gathered to anything when they die. That's their hope. That's their good news. It has to be here. But God's good news is different. His son came into the world with nowhere to lay his head. His son suffered and died, and then he rolled the stone away. God hasn't, God has taken death, the ultimate consequence of our failure, and he turned it into the doorway of life for his people. That's what he did. His own death and resurrection stand as a guarantee of His promise to us. So, friends, take courage. God is stronger than evil. We can also take courage because God's people will be vindicated. Let me explain. Jacob dies and Joseph mourns his death, and it says that the Egyptians mourn him 70 days and And that's longer than the normal mourning period that would have been given. It's a testimony to the impact of the lives of both Jacob and Joseph on the world around them. And then Joseph boldly requests the opportunity to put down his duties in Egypt for a time. Remember, he's second in command in all of Egypt. Pharaoh literally does nothing because because Joseph takes care of everything. But yet Joseph goes, Kedai go 
follow the command of my father, his dying wish, and bury him in a different country. And we might think, well, that's no big deal, but think for a second about this in an ancient Near Eastern context, how long he would have been gone just to make the journey there. Would he ever come back? This, this man who, whom Pharaoh has put everything on, knows everything about how Egypt works, Pharaoh doesn't have to worry about anything, and when Joseph takes care of it, it brings back tons of blessing to Pharaoh. Why would Pharaoh want him to ever take a step outside of Egypt? Why would he ever allow him to do that? I mean, even the request itself is risky. It could lead Pharaoh to think that Joseph's allegiance to Egypt is less than complete. But Joseph is more afraid of not being faithful than he is afraid of Pharaoh. And friends, I think that we could take a lesson in this. Are we more afraid of not being faithful, or are we more afraid of the powers that be? But it doesn't mean that he goes about it brashly, and there'll be a time for someone to come and declare to Pharaoh, let my people go, but this is not that time. He tactfully navigates this conversation, and Pharaoh grants him permission, not only for Joseph and all of Jacob's household to go, but but Pharaoh's servants and elders and chariots and horsemen to guard them on the journey. Do you understand? Pharaoh not only says, yes, you can go, but yes, I will bring, I will send my forces with you to guard you on each side as you travel there, mourn, and come back. See, at times we find obedience hard because we're more afraid of the consequences if we go about the thing poorly than the consequences of trying at all. And this is especially true when, like Joseph here, God calls us to do something that goes against the current uh, uh, culture, that goes against the grain of, of the culture's uh, current way of thinking. For instance, when we read God's Word and it talks about husbands leading their families and wives submitting, we immediately think about how all the the ways that that could go wrong and how unpopular that thought is in our culture, and so we step back away from it. We kind of try to ignore it or dodge it, or we try to downplay those passages. The world has told us to be more afraid of what might go wrong if we follow God's Word, then what will definitely go wrong if we don't? Friends, that, that kind of logic makes no sense, but we use it all the time. Man, I hear Christians use this logic all the time. But if, but if I do that, if I, if I try to follow that scripture, if I try to do that thing God tells me to do, then I've seen this go wrong, and I've seen that go wrong. I've seen it go sideways this way and that way. And I, th- I want to look at him and go, but you're already disobedient. Let's cross bridges when we get to them. And Satan wants, that's the lie that Satan wants to use to keep you from actually pushing into the things that God wants for you. 
that God has for you. If God's word says it, it is a blessing. Yes, we mess it up, sure, certainly. We fumble the ball all the time, and that's it's not good. You gotta learn to keep two hands on it. But but you don't score a touchdown if you never run the ball. Our fear keeps us from sharing the gospel because God's word might offend someone. We fear what they might think about us or how they might respond. Our fear of negative responses keeps us from seeing positive ones. And there are better and worse ways of going about things. Don't get me wrong. And Joseph here is skillfully speaking to Pharaoh, right? With all of his pleas and thank yous. They're all there. Like I said, Satan wants to keep you in fear, keep you from sharing the gospel, keep you from following God's word, keep, keep you from speaking God's word to other people because of fear, fear that something might go wrong, fear that they might react different or, or in a way that you don't want them to. He wants to keep you blind to the fact that you doing nothing may be the worst kind of wrong. You see, no good parent is mad when their kid tries to walk to them for the first time. You've had kids, you know what it's like when your kids first try to walk, right? The anticipation, the pride and the joy when they first like want to let go of the couch and take that step forward and you're just anticipating that step and that next step and you know they're going to fall you know they're not gonna, you know they're going to fall on their face the first time but you're just like come on come on and no parent is mad at their kid when their kid finally lets go of the couch and takes that step towards them when they fall no no parent goes i can't believe you fell and you didn't walk the first time how terrible of a child you are. No! What do parents do? Good parents. They reach out and they help them to take those first steps. They, they, their, their child falls and they pick them up and then they hold their hand just a little bit and a little bit less and a little bit less and help them to walk towards them, right? That's what a good parent does. Why would we not think that our Father in heaven would be any different? Why would we not think that he would not be excited when we let go of the couch and we seek to obey his word, even if we know that we are going to fall on our face a few times? He knows you're going to fall on your face a few times. He's prepared to pick you up. He's okay with it. Why aren't you? So they go all the way to Canaan to bury Jacob. And the Egyptians, they lament with them. And there's so many of them, and they lament so, so greatly, it says, that the Canaanites who are just looking on, observing this mass of people, I would assume probably a little bit scared about chariots and horsemen and everything rolling up in their, their territory. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I think we would all be. And and they're watching, but they're watching it and they go, no, they're mourning. They're burying someone and they're mourning. This must have been a great person. And this is a great 
mourning, so much so that they name, they rename the field, right? The mourning of the Egyptians. What's pictured in this whole scene, as I kind of alluded to before, uh, the obedience of Joseph to Jacob's request is a prefigurement of the exodus that's to come. Here it's only temporary. They're merely taking only Jacob, only Israel, if you will, goes to be buried in the promised land. But later, all of Israel will come out to the promised land. And you go, well, but the Egyptians went with them here, and they don't go with them there. And I think that's a big point to be considered here. The Egyptians didn't go with them in the Exodus. I think if in generations to come, they would have remembered the name of this place. If they would have remembered the mourning of the Egyptians when Joseph, the great Joseph's father, died. Perhaps Exodus would have been a little bit different of a story. If they had remembered the God of Joseph and of Jacob who had saved their people from starvation during the great famine, perhaps the exodus would have gone different. Perhaps Egypt would have ushered all the people of Israel out to the place that God had for them with chariots and horsemen. But they forgot. That's what we find out if we continue to read in Exodus. In that way, this event, this event that probably when I've read Genesis a dozen times, I've just read over, right? Not thinking much of it. It actually stands as a witness in two ways. First, a witness to Egypt and to all the nations, to the Canaanites, right? Of the honor due to God in His people. But second, it stands as a witness against Egypt, and to later generations, and a reason why God must come against them with a strong hand in Exodus. You see, we often live in fear of what people might think of us. What will they think if we obey God in this thing that I know they're going to disagree with or I know that they'll not understand? Will they be critical? Will it ruin the friendship that I have with them? What will they say? What will they post on social media? What if I mention Christ or what I believe? What if I share the gospel and they dismiss it, or worse yet, they're offended by it, and they object to it, and they argue, or they say something mean to me, or they don't want to talk to me again. But God's Word tells us that everyone knows the truth, but they're suppressing it. It tells us that the same gospel will be a fragrant wisdom to those who are saved and a stench to those who are perishing. Understand, the same gospel, not a different one, not one that's spoken well and one that's spoken poorly. No, the same gospel spoken in the same way will be grace to one person and a stench to those who are perishing, it says. And we do well to remember this. that the gospel stands as a witness, a witness calling some who would be saved to the grace of the Lord and a witness against those who are opposed to God on the day of judgment. 
And so we can obey God today no matter how it works out in the short run because on that day we will be vindicated regardless of what people think now. That's the right side of history, friends. The right side of history is decided on Judgment Day. And the worst thing that we can do for others is to bear witness in our lives and our words to something else. That only confuses the issue. You see, our obedient lives and our proclamation of the gospel will always be an effective witness. I also want you to understand, when you proclaim the gospel, it will always be an effective witness, either a witness to bring people to salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit, or it will stand as a witness against those people when they stand before Christ on Judgment Day. When they stand there and they say, but, but I didn't know. And they'll say, but Cody told you. But you did know. You were told. And we find that second one hard because we, we want people to know Christ, right? We want people to, to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that He's done for us. And listen, that's... that's a good impulse, I think God is not happy that any should perish, but we cannot forget also that the martyrs are saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We can't forget that scripture as well. And that it's good when God brings mercy and grace on someone, and it's also good when he brings justice. Both are good. God says both are good. Scripture says both are good. If Jesus says both are good, I am not more good than any of those things. I don't know better. And so I must submit to what God says and go, yeah, that's good. We find it hard to hold both of those, our desire for grace on others and our desire for justice. And we tend to actually, what really happens is we tend to favor one or the other depending on who the subject of, of it is, right? If, if we don't like the person, we want justice. If we like them, we want grace. When it's us, we want grace, but when it's when someone else, we want justice. We're fickle, but God isn't. And so the cross stands as an enduring symbol of God's grace to His people. And it also is a witness against those who would oppose God and His church. So take courage. God is stronger than evil. Take courage. God's purposes are good. This is sort of the climax of the entire book and of this section, this scene where Joseph's brothers are afraid that now that Jacob is dead, that Joseph will kill them as well. Behind, you see, oftentimes our fear is born out of feelings of uncertainty, right? Behind those feelings is a desire to be in control, to control the outcome of our lives, to control the outcome of whatever situation we're in. And so we can make sure that it works out the way that we want it to work out how we think is best, right? But death reminds us that we have no such control. 
And that's never better illustrated than in this climactic scene of Genesis. You see, Jacob dies. Much like Jacob and Esau, they're concerned that now that their father is dead, that, they'll, that, that Joseph will kill them. Now that their dad is dead, the hammer will fall, if you will. Perhaps because the brothers never really expressed fully their, or, or asked fully their forgive, for forgiveness, right? They never said, will you forgive me, right? And so what, is it, what do they do? What do they do? This is interesting. They send a message. They don't even initially go in person, right? But they send a message to Joseph. They say, hey, Dad, Dad said you should forgive us for all the evil we did to you, so will you forgive us for all the evil we did to you? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's my opinion, though. Not, I'm going to try to sell you on this. It's my opinion that this is a lie. It's a manipulation. Here's why I say that. While it could be possible that Jacob told the other brothers and not Joseph to do this, that this was truly a command to the other brothers, why would, they, why would it record, why would this, this chapter go to length to record their obedience to all the other commands? And to then record the obedience to this supposed command without re- recording the command itself. If you look at chapter 49, verse 33, it says, it tells us that, that Jacob uh, did command them, and then specifically said, it specifically says, and then he was finished commanding his sons. And then in verse 12 of chapter 50, it says, his sons did for him all that he had commanded, right? As he had commanded them. And so now there's a new command out of nowhere that Joseph didn't know about, that Joseph hadn't heard when in his father's dying moments when he was weeping over his face and kissing him? Nah, I don't think so. This is what we do. When we're afraid of things that are out of our control, we tend toward attempting to manipulate others to keep control, right? And that's what Joseph's brothers are doing. They're using their father's death to manipulate Joseph to have mercy on them. Here they are even trying to manipulate Joseph to do something good. I'm sure they could find plenty of justification for it. Well, Joseph should forgive us. Well, you know, Joseph shouldn't kill us. Well, Joseph, you know, this and Joseph that. And this is what we do, Christians. We justify the ends. Uh, We make the ends justify the means, right? Well, I know maybe I'm manipulating a little bit, but I mean, it's probably good that they would do that. It'd be bad if they didn't. But it was unnecessary. This is, the, this is what the irony, it was unnecessary. It was unnecessary because Joseph was applying to them the same reasoning that he had applied to himself, right? In the same way that they meant evil for Joseph, and yet Joseph understood that God meant it for good, so too they were assuming that Joseph would mean evil to them. 
Because they're thinking this is, what we would, this is what we did to Joseph. But Joseph has a different mindset, doesn't he? Because Joseph understands God's sovereignty over the situation. And so, because God meant their evil for good to Joseph, Joseph means good for them. Because Joseph is not in the place of God. God is in the place of God, and Joseph understands that. The point is this, God is in control. This is the point I want you to get. You're not in control. You never were in control. You feel like you were in control, and now you want to be in control, and so you manipulate, you do these other things, but you were never in control. God was in control the whole time, even when everything seemed out of control. It took a long time maybe for Joseph to realize that, but he knows it. And that's a scary thought that I'm not in control, but God is in control. It's a scary thought for those who oppose God, especially, but for us who love God, who are loved by God, it should be a comforting truth, perhaps the most comforting truth. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And what's the ultimate purpose for God's people? Well, verse 29 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we would become like Christ. So let me illustrate this from the story. The manipulation was unnecessary, but the forgiveness and admission of guilt was necessary. When we've done wrong to someone, To confess that sin feels like we're giving up control, right? Like we're handing someone else our fate. We're saying, okay, now I'm admitting I was wrong, so I'm giving this to you and you can do with it what you want to do with it. And that's scary. That's legitimately scary. Will they forgive us or won't they forgive us? Now that I've admitted it, now how will they use this against me? But when we've been wronged, when we're not the one that's done the wronging, when we've been the one who's wrong, when we're the one who's wronged by someone, forgiving that person feels like giving up control as well. Can I really let them just go free? Can I give up this thing that now I hold over them? Now that they've admitted it, I could use this to control them in future situations, right? I could use this against them to get them to do the things that I want them to do because you remember you did that against me back then. Look, if you're married, you know. Like, you know. Okay? We try to manipulate in two directions. When one person is wronged, they start raising the bar. This is all the things you need to do to get over the bar because of the thing that you've done. But that's legalism. It's not the gospel. We make them build our, their ladder over, of good deeds to get over it. The problem is, is as soon as someone starts, as soon as we say jump and someone else says to us how high, we start to like that control. I don't know. I kind of like it being able to say, here, how high? Jump, how high? I don't think I want to give that up. And so someone else says, let's just have grace about this. Let's just declare an amnesty over this whole thing. 
But we don't really mean grace when we say that, do we? Not in the biblical sense. We're using the word graciousness, but what we really mean is lawlessness. Can we just get rid of the standard? Can we, could we just lower the bar until our behavior gets over it, and then we'd all be okay? Just pretend the bar isn't there, and we can kind of keep some sense of control. The problem is, no one is conformed to the image of the Son in any of these situations. And that's God's purpose. Neither the person who sinned and needs forgiveness, nor the person who needs to forgive as Christ forgives. Neither happens. And so neither is conformed to the image of God. Grace is seen in Joseph's words. Yes, you were evil. Yes, what you did was a transgression. Yes, it would lead to death, except, except for the grace and power of God is at work here. He used it for good, and I will use my power to do the same. This is the only way that guilt turns into godliness. Christ, having all power, took on human flesh, willingly relinquished control to the will of the Father so that we can be conformed to His image. In other words, when you are afraid because things seem out of control, I'd be willing to bet that God is using that exact situation to conform you into the image of Christ. That thing that is out of control that thing that feels out of control in your life, I would be willing to guess, is the thing that God is using to make you like Him. If you trust Him instead of being afraid. If you trust Him and have faith in Him instead of being afraid. If you trust His promises and His goodness and His sovereignty instead of being afraid and running the other way. Because what you're running away from is Christ. Don't be afraid to become more like Jesus. And listen, God will do for you exactly what Joseph does for his brothers. Look at verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Your father wants to do that to you, to comfort you, to provide you for you, to speak kindly to you. So do not fear. Take courage. God is stronger than evil. One last thing. Take courage. God's coming in power. The entire book draws to a close. Joseph's life is wrapped up with him living to a good old age, seeing his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. Joseph tells his brothers and his sons in this passage twice, God will surely visit you. He's so confident that he gives instructions for later generations to take his bones to the promised land when God takes them out of Egypt. God will do this, and when he does, take my bones to the promised land, because I don't, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a, I'm a man of God. I'm part of the people of God. Much like Jacob, Joseph leaves his sons with expectation for what God will do in future generations, because rather than fear, he has faith in God's promises. So look around at how people act. 
at the kinds of things that commercials and shows on television appeal to, and consider how you yourself even think. And we become concerned more or less exclusively with what we can do. We find all the purpose and meaning of our lives in our living of our lives, right? All the purpose and meaning of our lives to the world is in the living of it. What you get to experience and do and whatever. We live like the world is going to end when we end. That's the bill of goods that the world is selling to us. And of course it is. We're so used to swimming in a sea of secular humanism that we don't realize it when we are swallowing it in in big gulps. So we ask something like, sure, I believe that Jesus saves me for eternity, but what help is that right now? Because we've allowed the thinking of the world to come into our heart more than God's Word because we aren't really looking for Jesus and His promises. We want the, what the world is promising, but we just want it through Jesus. But Jesus came in power as a servant, and He died in power while in submission. He rose in power over death. He ascended in power, sending His Spirit to empower us, and He's working in power through His church and through His gospel right now, and He will return in power to finish it. When our work stops, God's does not. I remember the first time I uh, left the ministry, I was a youth pastor at a church for five years, and then I decided to move. We were going to move to a different city. And I remember, I remember a pastor coming to me and pulling me aside, and, and a friend, and he said to me, he goes, Cody, this church was fine before you got here, and this church will be fine after you leave. And it was the greatest thing that anyone ever told me in that moment because it reminded me that it didn't depend on me, that it wasn't my work, that it was God's church, it was God's work, it was God's work for five years, and it'll be God's work for the next five years. When our work stops, God's work through our work does not as well because it doesn't depend on us being ever-present because God is ever-present. If others don't recognize it, it doesn't matter. If we don't recognize that, it doesn't matter because God is doing it. We, can, we can't be so concerned about being left behind that we fail to think about what we will leave behind. And that ought to change our attitude and our, and our outlook, but it's not just uh, about feeling good about what's going on. That's what the world is selling to us. It's about the reality of the thing, Right? We can feel good about what we're doing today and the obedience we have today, not just because we feel good about it, but because it actually is founded in a reality that Christ has done something and He will do something. Faith drives out fear because the object of our faith defeated death. And Joseph needs someone to take his bones out of the promised land, but Jesus left no bones. but he did leave his spirit and he promised to be with us to the end of the age. Are we, are we pushing through to the end of the leg, our leg of the race, knowing that 
God will carry the race on. Take courage. God is stronger than evil. I want to end with one last illustration. I couldn't think of any better way to end the book of Genesis than with an illustration from Lord of the Rings. I really feel like I just haven't had enough Lord of the Rings references in this sermon series, so I've got to end with one more. But I was thinking about that the ending of, of the books and the, the movies, if you've seen them, and if you haven't, spoiler alert, close your ears. Frodo, at the very end, he says, he turns to Sam. You remember this? He turns to Sam, and he says to him, Sam, I'm glad to be with you here at the end of all things. And this is how we often feel. For Frodo, his mission is done. What's, and what's more, he failed at it, right? He had one job, one job, throw the ring in the fire. One job. And he carried that ring for miles and miles and miles through peril after peril after peril after peril. And when the critical moment came and he stood on the edges of the fires of Mount Doom and he had the ring in his hand, he succumbed to temptation. And he put it on his finger. He didn't throw it in the fire. His worst fear came true. He gave in. But you remember, remember earlier in the movies or in the books when he says, got a feeling, something, something about this Gollum character. Something. There's a purpose yet here. And Gollum ends up being Frodo's Genesis 50, 20 moment, right? As he bites the ring off Frodo's finger and falls with it to his death, right? You remember? The evil, that evil, turned out to be for good and for the saving of many people. It turned out that it wasn't actually the end of all things felt that way for Frodo in that moment, but it wasn't. And it reminds us of a conversation that happened at the very beginning of the trilogy between Frodo and Gandalf. Frodo turns to Gandalf and he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. God has given you a time and a place. And evil will happen, and sin will happen, and death will happen. But Christ comes through in the end. And God is sovereign. And so I ask you, 
Will you live in fear or will you take courage? Let's pray.